everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor Amos Grunendijk. I want to get started with our series that began last week. We're talking about worship for the next, well, this week and next week, before we transition to another short series on prayer. But Tyler Stelmack, our worship pastor, did a great job last week kicking it off. And I mean, if you didn't watch the video, please do. But if I could just summarize it in a statement here, I would put it this way. Tyler told us, worship Jesus not cheeses. If you, if you remember anything about la- the, the talk, you probably remember his passion for cheese, but also his passion for Jesus, and that really came through, and he did a great job. And one thing that I think was so good is he connected the idea of worship and love really well. He wove the idea of loving God through the talk. And I think one way to think about worship is it is that way that we express our love for Jesus. And there's a thousand ways to do that. In fact, almost anything that's in line with God's desire and will, and if it's good, can be dedicated to God as worship. So, of course, when we sing, but also when we serve, uh, when we pray, like all this thing, all this can get categorized as worship if it's done out of an expression of our love for God. And one of the things we're doing in this series is we are letting people share how they worship. And this week we'll watch a little video uh, done by Sarah Mack, who some of you may know, but I uh, would just love to hear from her this morning as she shares about how she worships. Hey, Vineyard family. Here's how I have been worshiping lately. Um, well, first, I like to worship by song, just like most of you, and that's really how I learned how to talk to God and tell him how awesome he is. And I've, for years, noticed just how I want to tell God how awesome he is when I'm in his creation and seeing the beauty every season brings and thinking, God made that. Um, so those two things continue. But there's a new, um, a new feeling or a new motivation to, to worship him. And lately, I've just noticed how wonderful it is to have good friends who know me, who know my story, who listen, and, and how I'm getting to know them. It's not just about me being known, but knowing other people and connecting by their story has... Um, been such a joy for me. And in that intimacy of friendship, I am finding myself so thankful for God and for relationship. And when I'm, after I've just finished hanging out with friends or, um, you know, had meaningful conversation and, and even less meaningful conversation, but did life together in more simple ways with friends, I'm, I'm just finding myself calling out to God and telling him how thankful I am for those relationships. And I see him in that. And I've been thinking about how God is relational himself. 
in, within himself, and he came in the form of a person in Jesus. And I've been thinking more about Jesus as I've gotten to know him more with um, studying the word. And I have my um, daughter, Juniper, to thank for that. Since I'm homeschooling her, I feel dedicated to um, teaching her the Bible. And it's teaching me, and I'm so glad to get to know him. And I'm finding myself just wanting to be with him. And that's new for me. It's not usually when I'm with other people. Um, sometimes it is, but I find myself just being so sad that I can't be with him now on the earth. I want to know the person of Jesus, just like I'm getting to know, um, my friends and they're getting to know me. I want to be in the room with him. I want to, um, to know him like that. And it's a longing and it's kind of painful. Um, but I'm seeing that as worship when I'm telling him, I want to be with you and near you. And I want to know you more. Um, that to me is, is worshiping him. And I look forward to that day when I can be with him. But, um, in the meantime, I find that the con I, he is near. I know he's near and sometimes he doesn't feel near. Sometimes he does feel near, but I'm feeling even more near to him when I'm near to people and being known by them and knowing them. So that's where I'm at today with worship. I look forward to seeing how the variety of ways that, um, worship will grow and change with me as I grow and change. Thank you, Sarah. I, I personally connect with a lot of what she was saying. I hope you did too. And uh, including the idea of like being connected to other people as part of your faith. There is a myth that faith is meant to be personal and private, but when we read the Bible, we find that it is also communal and public. And so faith is meant to be lived out together. Uh, I want to look at or talk a little bit more about what she said through a lens of a Celtic Irish idea. They have this idea of a thin place. Have you heard about this? Actually, the new Vineyard single from Vineyard Worship is called Thin Places. Were you playing that on the track before? Yeah, you, you heard it if you were tuned into the track or came in to the room uh, before the service started. A thin place is actually what they would say a, a physical location, like put it on the map. And if you go there, the, the space between heaven and earth is very thin. So if you can imagine like there's a, a veil or a curtain between heaven and earth, or if you could think of it as distance, it actually gets very thin in these places. And I'm told, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I, I've actually heard people say, I've gone to this place and it's surreal. It's like heaven and earth are overlapping or it's, it, God feels super close and I can't explain what's different about this place, but it is different. It is sacred. It is holy. And the, the weird thing about these spaces, and there are several of them, uh, in Ireland is it's not necessarily a beautiful, majestic mountain scene. It, it's, for instance, like the, the island of Ionia, which is technically Scotland now, but anyway. It, it could be like a grassy field. It could be a place where a rock was set up, uh, you know, maybe a thousand or two thousand years ago. Or maybe there's a church that's been built on one of these thin 
places. But if you heard Sarah mention a few things that she's experiencing God in like near ways, she's, she's talking about the thin places. She's talking about singing, of course, which we did a few minutes ago and we'll do again at the end of the service. She talked about being in community with people who put Jesus at the center. Like the kind of friendship she's talking about is spiritual friendship. The kind of friendship that actually acknowledges that Jesus is Lord and we're going to put like our, our heart and soul into following him. And then the third place she mentioned as a thin space is her study of the Bible. But I noticed two things about how she talked about the Bible that I think are worth noticing. The things, things that make the Bible, reading the Bible, a thin place. The first is that it was all about getting to know Jesus. Did you notice that? It's about the relationship with Jesus, not reading for knowledge's sake, not for information, but for nearness to Jesus. And the second thing, and I, I loved that this came out, is that she's, she's teaching the Bible to her children. And so as she participates in her faith, and in particular the, the reading of the Bible, it's not a consumeristic, how is this serving me, I'm, I'm, I'm like reading the Bible like I'm watching Netflix, like I'm, I'm getting some good things from it. I'm actually engaging with it in such a way that I'm coming in at it uh, as, a, as a teacher, as something to be shared, not just as something to consume. So I think uh, if we could think about those activities as thin places, that will be a way that we can better acknowledge Jesus in our midst and express our love for him through worshiping in all these ways. So let's actually jump into the Bible, hopefully in a way that brings Jesus near and that transforms our life. So if you brought your Bibles, you can open up to Revelation chapter 4. Oh boy, Revelation has some baggage to it. Uh, a lot of people read Revelation in very, what I'll just say, interesting ways. But what you need to know before I read is that Revelation is a very specific genre called apocalyptic literature. And so it's rich with symbols and, uh, and it's meant to engage your imagination. And I think sometimes as like Western thinkers who often live in our head, we're trying to figure out what does this mean? And in this, does this mean A or does this mean B? And it's more, it's more artistic than that, or it's more, it's more layered than that. Like there may be multiple levels of meaning in the, in the place you are in life and the circumstances and your maturity, like all play into how these symbols come to mean something to you. So we'll, I'll, talk a, I'll talk a little bit about how I read it, but just engage your imagination. Visualize the scene as I read Revelation chapter 4. It's about worship. Then as I looked, this is John, I saw a door standing open in heaven. All right, this is like a thin place. Not just thin, but like the veil has been totally pulled back. And in the same voice I had heard before, spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come up here, I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, 
and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. So first question I want to ask you is, do you think this is a scene that describes the past, the present, or the future? And I'm going to ask you to think about it for a second and then raise your hand based on what you think. And I'll say like at the Vineyard, we really try hard to be a place without judgment. So if you're wrong, I won't judge you. I might laugh at you. I'm kidding. No, I won't. But <laughs> no, that like no judgment uh, for an answer. Uh, just, just, just give it a shot. So how many of you think this is a picture of the past? Raise your hand. How many of you think this is a picture of the future? Raise your hand. How many of you think this is a picture or a vision of the present? Raise your hand. Would it change your answer if you knew that this scene is actually a reprise of something written in Ezekiel chapter 1 that was written several hundred years before uh, the revelation of John that's recorded here? Would it change your answer if you knew that in the chapter preceding this, there are letters written, or, or letters is not quite the right word, there are messages sent to seven, what, 2,000 years ago, was modern-day churches in various places like Philadelphia and Laodicea and Ephesus and all over. Here's... Here's what I want to suggest to you. I think this is a scene that is describing the past as it was, the present as it is, and the future as it will be. So trick question, I guess. Uh, I saw someone in the back raise their hand and keep it raised, but <laughs> I'm also married to that person. Maybe somebody else too, and maybe, I don't know. It, the idea here is that as heaven is torn open, John is seeing a vision of what is really going on behind the curtain. And I think the context of this revelation is really important. So first of all, those letters or those messages that precede in chapters 2 and 3 are actually written to churches. And five out of the seven are messages of rebuke. Messages of your hearts have missed the mark. Your lives have not 
been in step with my heart, says Jesus. And so this is a time and place where the church is a little bit of a mess, where people are disappointed, perhaps, with the effectiveness of the church. In some cases, the church has sold out to Roman culture. In other places, they've neglected the poor. In some places, like when they were really hot and fiery for God, it's cooled down and like you just kind of stale water is the metaphor given. And I, I think this could connect with some people today, like just disappointment with the big C church. But it was, it was true then as it's true today. The other thing that's interesting, like bigger picture, look at the Roman Empire. It's most likely Emperor Domitian who is ruling during what is later called the Reign of Terror. And so he's doing everything he can to dismantle the Roman Senate, to flex authoritarian Roman muscle against people who are his uh, adversaries or subjects. And Christians, it seems, are, are especially a thorn in his side because they won't do what he's demanding the empire do, and that is to worship him. To not just uh, sacrifice and give offerings uh, to him in like a temple sense, but also to control the ethics and moral behavior. He's trying to reach into people's lives and direct how they live. And so as the veil gets pulled back, Christians are seeing with their physical eyes a church that's missing the mark, a world that seems chaotic and crumbling, that you can imagine fear and despair and maybe even disdain and anger at times. And the revelation to John, as he pulls back the curtain, says, you know who actually sits on the throne? You know what's actually happening right now? You know who sits at the center of the universe? It's not the leader of the world's superpower. It is God the Father Almighty. And surrounding him are these four living creatures. Again, different ways to interpret these creatures. I think a good reading would be that these four creatures, like the ox, the man, uh, and so forth, are representative of the creation. Like all of creation acknowledges that God is king. And what we'll find out if you were to read on in chapter 5, Jesus actually sits there at the middle as well, displayed as a slain lamb which would mess with anybody's view of what power looks like. The most powerful being in the universe gave his life and is presented as a weak, bloody sacrifice. What's going on with that? Surrounding these four creatures are 24 elders wearing crowns. Now, again, the elders could be representative of several things, but most likely it's a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 disciples or 12 apostles who followed Jesus around. So you have like that the heroes of the Old Testament, the collective people of God, and the New Testament represented here, which again is different than if you were thinking of who your heroes were or who the heroes of the Roman day, you know, regular old person would be. You would think Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and, and uh, Augustus and, and, and these conquerors and maybe a senator or two and here we have, when you pull back the veil, who's really closest to the true source of power? It's the heroes of faith. It's the people who have given their life, not just their day-to-day -day living, but many of them their, their physical life for the name of Jesus. 
these are the people who are closest to real power, not those who try to wield earthly and human power in, you know, <laughs> in the world as we see it. This is a pulling back of the veil, getting into the thin space, seeing what's actually going on, who's really in power. And so it's meant to encourage and give faith to Christians who are confused, despairing with the world as it is and the church as it is too. Jesus sits on the throne. One thing also in this scene, as I've been saying, at the center is God, the Almighty. There was a man named Saint Augustine who coined this Latin phrase. Anybody want to learn a little Latin today? Can we put it up there so that I don't stumble over it? It's so clear in my head. Incurvatus inse. Anybody know what that means? Yes? It means to be turned in on oneself, to be curved in on oneself. This is to contrast in curvatus ad Deus, which is to be turned in toward God. So like the way as the world really is, God at the center, is not often how we live our lives. We live in curvatus in se. We see ourselves as the center of the universe. If you imagine a point and everything else is in orbit around and curved toward it, it's about my time and my comfort and my money and my safety. It's about me, me, me and my energy and how I want to live and I want to make decisions, and I get to choose, right? And if you were to pull back the veil between us and heaven, you would see who's actually at the center. If you were to imagine yourself walking into that room where God is enthroned, you would have a rude awakening. It's not like God doesn't sit at the universe if you don't acknowledge him as so. If, if you were to walk in this room, though, you would get with the program real fast. This is the idea behind worship, and this is the message of Jesus' kingship. Get, like, see that Jesus is king, not make Jesus king. Get in tune with reality. One of the interesting paradoxes is the more in curvatus in say we are, the actually less happy and less purpose we have. Isn't that weird? Like we'd think if we wanted to be happy, we should all work on our own happiness. If you think you would think that if you want to have purpose in your life, you think about, what do I want to do with my life? What job do I want to have? What kind of car do I want to buy? You would think that would be the way to find purpose if you made your purpose about yourself. But the reality is, if you want to like, actually live a happy and meaningful life, it's all about acknowledging the reality that God sits at the center of the universe, getting in line and in step with that truth. That is, like, that is the message of the kingdom. That is the message of Jesus' kingship, to turn away from or to change from the incurvatus inse, which we all tend toward, and, and make our lives about incurvatus ad deus, making God the center. The other thing about this room, if you walked in, you notice how physical it is? There's like bowing down and shouting. Like If you walked into this room and the whole world bowed down, I think you would give in to peer pressure, wouldn't you? Like you would, would you be standing like with your arms crossed if the veil between heaven and earth was ripped open? I don't think so. This is actually a very physical scene if you're imagining it as John describes it. And that's what I want to 
talk about really for the rest of the time, the connection between our bodies and what we do with our bodies and our worship. And so this comes through in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus, of course, references Deuteronomy 6 uh, when he speaks. But in Deuteronomy 6, you have the original, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is the Lord alone. And uh, verse 5, you must love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And when we hear soul, a lot of times we think, oh yeah, that like spiritual part of us, the thinking or maybe feeling part, that kind of vapory part of us. But no, in the Hebrew idea of soul, I'm going to quote from the Mount's complete expository dictionary, nefesh, the word for soul, encompasses the entire person, body and soul. It is not that a person has a soul, rather a human being is a nefesh, is a soul. And so our worship is to be embodied. By the way, when I quote a Bible dictionary, I'm not trying to say, look at me, I read Bible dictionaries. I'm, I'm quoting it because I actually think this is a resource for those of you who want to study and learn from the Bible and connect with Jesus through that reading. And if you're kind of like a cranial person, like it, it's a good one to buy. And I'll, t- I'll tell you this, if five households buy that Bible dictionary, let me know. And I'll do a little mini... Greek practical course thing for you. Sound like a deal? Deal. Five households, buy the book, and I'll teach you a little Greek. Uh, but it's, it's, it has Hebrew in there too, but we'll not worry about that just yet. Anyway, nefesh is embodied. And not just nefesh, with all the strength of your nefesh, of your body. The elders bow down. And what you find in the Bible is that you are commanded to, it is described, and it's also, it's proscribed in the sense that it's commanded and it's described like how physical worship is. The weird thing about a lot of Christian theology is that we, or often sometimes people who are following Jesus, don't see the body as fundamentally good, which is understandable, but I think a misreading of the Apostle Paul, especially parts of his letters to the Romans and to the Colossian, where he talks about the powers inside of us, and he describes them, I think, metaphorically as the flesh and as the spirit. The flesh being the powers inside of us that uh, incurvatus insay, and the spirit being the transformed, renewed Jesus life, who, or that... uh, eventually, you know, overcomes and drives out the the flesh. But the flesh is not meant to, when he talks about the flesh in that way, he's not saying like that your body is bad. It, it gets into Christian theology largely because of the Platonic idea of that we are spirits stuck in temporary bodies and the things that are actually good are kind of up in this world of the forms. Did anybody take philosophy 101? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. Um, And then gets imported, get this, it gets imported into like Christian packaging through an early heresy called Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of this early Christian heresy? Okay, yep. Some people. It's a cult that takes the stories of Jesus and applies Greek philosophy from Plato to the Christian faith. And it's basically two premises. It's all about, we have secret sauce. We know the secret. So it's a cult based on conspiracies. 
And number two, the body is bad. So the incarnation never really happened. Jesus never really died. In fact, they have this story about how like Jesus kind of faked out the world and like the guy who carried the cross, Simon, gets nailed to the cross and Jesus like flies away like, ha ha, suckers, because the world is fundamentally bad. But that's not actually the message of the Bible. Do you guys know John 1? I bet, you, I bet many of you do. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word already. Talking about Jesus, but like the, well, we'll get there, the, the creative kind of power of Jesus that holds everything together. The Word was with God. The Word was God, the Greek logos, right? He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. If we jump down to verse 14, it says, So the word became human flesh and made his home among us. Jesus comes to us as God in the flesh. That's like the knockout punch to any idea that flesh is bad, that bodies are bad. And so how we use our bodies really matters and how we view our bodies matters too and it is fundamentally good our bodies are fundamentally good as we read the bible worship is a huge theme if you scan the nlt the word worship shows up like 500 and i could give you the exact number but over 500 times but in that you find these actually very physical expressions of worship so early old testament what do you do if you want to like thank god for something cool he did you build an altar. You make a sacrifice. Have you guys ever built an altar? You know what altars are usually built out of? Stone. This is down in the dirt. This, you're tired after building an altar. And to like sacrifice something, not just, you know, throw a couple quarters on the pillar, but like your best cow from your herd. Say, God gets my first. Like that's, that's actually a very involved and physical process. Uh, the, the times that people bow down comes up in Revelation 4, but like it's very, very common when people worship to bow down or Psalm 130-something. I'll just get this right. Psalm 134 talks about raising hands in worship to God. Jesus talks about fasting. There's this connection between like, I'm hungry in my stomach, translates, this is how I understand fasting, when you feel hungry in your stomach, it actually creates your body, it makes your body almost like this thin place where your hunger for food can translate, helps you understand like your hunger and need for God. Uh, one of the most common physical commands in the Bible is to sing. Singing in the NLT comes up 186 times. It's almost always about singing praises to God. It is a, an embodied expression. And that's why some of us can't sing on tune. It's biological. <laughs> you know. But it, it's, it's breath and it's lungs and it's somebody, some people, like they, when they're really singing their guts out, they'll, you know, their stomach hurts because they're just, they're worshiping or maybe they're dancing around or, 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 Physically, something happens. In fact, the vineyard movement, this is one way that the story can get told, was largely made of burnt out pastors who were just worn out on church and their relationship with God felt stale and they get together hungry for God 
And so they start singing to Jesus, not about Jesus, not about theology, but to Jesus. And they started to have their hearts and their minds renewed, but also something happened in their bodies that they didn't expect. When the presence of God would come into a room, they'd fall flat on the ground because it was so intense. It's happened to me a few times in my life. And it's, it's beyond. I mean, it's beyond a spiritual encounter. It's something you feel in your body. Sometimes if you see in the vineyard, people shake or sway. There, there's something in their body that's reacting to the presence of Jesus in the room. We're connected to our bodies. And I just, I want to tell you, like, sometimes we raise our hands because we're feeling it. Sometimes we kneel because, oh, we just feel Jesus is close. But let me tell you this. When you look at the Bible, when it, when it becomes a command, I think it works the other way too. Sometimes I raise my hands because I'm not feeling it. But I want to. Sometimes I kneel because I'm stuck in my head. And I, I've had a really hard time worshiping this past year. And so I kneel because my body can speak to my heart. My, my body and my heart and my mind, they're connected. Um, the, uh, I mean, there's, there's science behind this. But it's, also, it's backed up by scripture. I remember in one of my uh, psychology classes in college, he said, my professor said, you know, if you're feeling sad, what you can do is you can take a pencil. This one's not sharp, so I wouldn't stab myself. But he said, put it in your mouth and uh, make sure that your lips don't touch any part of the pencil. So if you do that, he said, now take the pencil out of your mouth. What am I doing? I'm smiling. I'm not talking, this doesn't treat clinical depression. But it, it does something, like it lifts your mood just, just the slightest little bit. You can feel it. Try it. Um, our, our bodies are meant to worship Jesus. Another example, just for my own life, <laughs> you know, for, for almost my entire life, I took a shower every single morning. This past year hasn't been quite the same. I'd showered on Sundays. But do you experience this? If you don't take a shower in the morning, you're not like, fresh and ready for the day, like you stay a little fuzzy until you take your shower, whether it's at, you know, seven in the morning or 5 p.m. at night. COVID has pushed my showers more toward nighttime. And so I'm just like, I think maybe that's why everyone's so fuzzy, because we're just not taking showers like we used to. But there, do, you, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, it is, it is authentic. It is true. If you want to Worship Jesus. If you, want, if you want to acknowledge that Jesus is at the center and, and you actually want your heart to engage with him to raise your hands even if you're not feeling like it. If you're, if you're wanting to bless God. Like this is actually, this is like an old school way of blessing. So like if the priests were to bless the people, they would put their hands up like this. That's why if I do a blessing at the end of the service, I raise my hands. But if you raise your hands, you can imagine, like I'm blessing God right now. I'm engaging my body. Um, you know, it used to be people clapped a lot in church. I think in the vineyard we used to. I think it still happens in gospel churches, but on a different beat. So it's very challenging. It's actually, I'm better at clapping off the beat than on the beat. But I don't, 
but not necessarily on the right off beats. Anyway, there, it's a way to engage your body. But like, okay, so, so you don't know how to sing, so you can't clap on rhythm. You're gonna annoy some people, like especially depending on their personality type. And if you're married to them, maybe even a little more, like if you clap, clap off beat, I'm getting nods uh, from that late night, you know, really attractive person in the back row who I married to, but anyway. Uh, like it's, it's engaging your body. It, when you sing off key, when you clap your hands off rhythm, like it's a way to get your body in gear. To worship God in your body. One thing, two things. First thing is a thin place, a way that we engage is through communion. When we take bread and uh, juice or wine or whatever. And so if you're online, push the pause button, go get your go get your stuff. If you came into the building and didn't grab communion cups off the table, go do that now or in a second. But it's a physical thing. Did you ever think about that? It's like you're physically taking what's representative of Jesus' body and blood and you're putting it in your mouth. It's it's reenacting the reality that Jesus lives in you and becomes part of you. It's this tactile thing that you can touch. But to push this all just one step farther, I'm going to go to Romans 12. And if you were with us a couple months ago, we actually spent two weeks on Romans 12. But this is one of those electric places in the Bible. Romans 12, verse 1. This is Paul writing to a church in Rome. And he says, So dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the, fine, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is the true way to worship. And the amazing thing is, what he goes on to describe is not sing songs, read your Bible, pray. Those things are good things to do. What he goes on to describe is, is a transformed life, a life that looks like Jesus. And so, he, talk, he does talk about serving other people with your spiritual gifts. But also to, in verse 9, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. And he talks about showing hospitality to people and serving those in need. He, he, pushes, he pushes you. Jesus pushes us outside of what is comfortable towards sacrifice toward living as a holy sacrifice, like sacrificing daily, not about what I want, not about what I want to do, something that actually goes outside of myself to serve and love other people well as an act of worship. But he pushes us toward the end, uh, not only to weep with those who weep and to laugh with those who laugh, but to bless those who persecute you. And get this, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, your enemies, give them something to drink. Show them kindness. Invite them into your home for a meal. Guys, this is, this is putting the love of Jesus, giving it flesh. That's the idea. When we love the world, like Jesus loves the world, like Jesus loves your neighbors, like Jesus loves your family members that are like kind of hard to get along with, when you repay curse with blessing, you're giving the love of Jesus flesh. 
And, and unfortunately, just to return to like the idea of reading the Bible, there's actually, there's a way to read the Bible and there's a way to sing. The Bible says your God's name is on your lips, but your hearts are far from me. There's a way to sing. There's a way to, to read your Bible where God actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with it because there's no fruit. The kind of fruit that God wants for your life isn't being cultivated, isn't being shown. Some people can read the Bible and sing the songs and they actually get meaner and more exclusive. And, and the Bible and the church even becomes a weapon, some, a political weapon, a personal weapon, a judgmental brick. Let it not be so for us. Let our songs not simply be words on our lips and encounters with the one who sits on the throne. Let our Bible reading not just be for the information that we could use to win an argument, but for the transformation that makes us love and live more like Jesus. And so, let's pray. Jesus, come into this room. And I think like even just opening our hands now and standing might be a way to say, with our bodies, we expect you to meet us here. So come, Holy Spirit. We worship you with our heart, our soul, and all our strength. We sing to you now, praising you because you are worthy of all the glory, of all the praise, of every love song that's ever been written, of every piece of art that is beautiful, you are worthy of it. And so come Holy Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.